The second reading is from the first chapter of James. Every generous act of giving with every perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights, with whom there is no variation or shadow due to change. In fulfillment of his own purpose, he gave us birth by the word of truth, so that we would become a kind of first fruits of his creatures. You must understand this, my beloved. Let everyone be quick to listen, slow to speak, slow to anger, for your anger does not produce God's righteousness. Therefore, rid yourselves of all sordidness and rank growth of wickedness, and welcome with meekness the implanted word that has the power to save your souls. But be doers of the word, and not merely hearers who deceive themselves. For if any are hearers of the word and not doers, they are like those who look at themselves in a mirror. For they look at themselves and, on going away, immediately forget what they were like. But those who look into the perfect law, the law of liberty, and persevere, being not hearers who forget, but doers who act, they will be blessed in their doing. If any think they are religious and do not bridle their tongues but deceive their hearts, their religion is worthless. Religion that is pure and undefiled before God the Father is this, to care for orphans and widows in their distress and to keep oneself unstained by the world. The word of the Lord. Then he called the crowd again and said to them, Listen to me, all of you, and understand. 
There is nothing outside a person that by going in can defile. But the things that come out are what defile. For it is from within, from the human heart, that evil intentions come. Fornication, theft, murder, adultery, avarice, wickedness, deceit, licentiousness, envy, slander, pride, folly. All these evil things come from within, and they defile the person. The Gospel of the Lord. Praise, Praise to you, Lord Christ. from God, our Heavenly Father, and Christ Jesus, our Lord, our perfect lawgiver. Amen. If we're being honest, we all know someone like the Pharisees in today's gospel reading. Quick to chime in with an accusatory question and judging side-eye. In contemporary speech, Pharisee is synonymous with exactly this type of person. An arrogant, haughty, legalistic disciplinarian slavishly devoted to a strict interpretation of the rules, who is quick to render an unrequested verdict. Your disciples eat without washing their hands? Bless their hearts. Oh, you let your children watch that movie? Aren't you worried that it might corrupt their young minds? <laughs> you listen to that kind of music? I shouldn't be surprised. Garbage in, garbage out, as they say. <laughs> I just don't understand why anyone would possibly believe that. And with the irony lost on the speaker, you go to that church, aren't they kind of pharisaical? And you immediately know from their tone of voice that the question isn't really a question. They already know what they think the answer is. And the only way to avoid their judgment is to agree with them quickly, directly, and explicitly. I would wager that if I asked, each and every one of you could write down a list of modern Pharisees, a detailed inventory of arrogant people, passive-aggressive family members, condescending friends, patronizing co-workers, legalistic churches, and judgmental organizations that drive you absolutely bonkers. And yes, I could also produce my own list. If we're being honest, though, we've all known ourselves to be that person. That person quick to pass judgment, because surely we know exactly the right way to do things. 
We have all the right answers. We know exactly what we're talking about, and everyone needs to listen to us. When we read through the Gospels, we too often paint the Pharisees with a broad brush. We depict them as arrogant, judgmental. The evangelists write them to be sort of a foil to Jesus. And it's easy for us to forget this. But the Pharisees were very much like us. They were decent people trying their hardest to love God. They were what we might call the church folks of their time. People trying to live faithful lives. People trying to follow the covenant. People who, under difficult circumstances, were trying to figure out how they could continue to be the people God had called them to be. What we see today isn't a group of strict disciplinarians demanding obedience, but rather devout people worried that someone is leading the faithful astray. And how easily we fall into that same trap. Hold on too tightly to human tradition and our own self-assuredness. From the passive-aggressive to the vitriolic and confrontational, from the minor issues to the major, we all have a trace of the Pharisee within us. But we miss our connection to the Pharisees. And we miss it for a very Lutheran reason. The distinction between law and gospel. And when I say a very Lutheran reason, I don't mean to say that only Lutherans have this problem, but that Luther is the one who introduced this problem to Christianity, at least in the West. Luther, and even more so some of his contemporaries and heirs, offer a helpful distinction between law and gospel between law, what one must do, and gospel, the good news of salvation by grace through faith in Christ. Interpreting St. Paul's letters, Luther and others talk about the law which convicts us of our sin and the gospel which sets us free. In one painting, the Lutheran artist, Lucas Cronach the Elder, a personal favorite of mine, but also one who served as something of the official illustrator for the Reformation, painted the distinction clearly. On one side, you have the law. And on that side of the painting, Christ sits enthroned as the judge of the world. On that side of the painting, Adam and Eve fall into sin. On that side, venomous snakes plague the Hebrews in the Sinai, and death and the devil prod a sinner with a spear, pushing him toward a flaming abyss. On the side of the gospel, John the Baptist points sinners towards Christ on the cross. The Lamb of God tramples death and the devil underfoot, and Christ exits the tomb victorious. In the middle, a thick tree marks a clear dividing line between the two sides. It is a stirring painting, to be sure, even though it's not exactly subtle. 
This sharp distinction, which Cronach so bluntly illustrated, reflects much of Luther's approach to the scripture. Luther was so determined to distinguish between law and gospel that he went so far as to criticize books of the New Testament for blurring the distinction. He called St. James' letter, which we read today, an epistle of straw compared to the others, for it has nothing of the nature of the gospel about it. Or, in other words, oh, so you're preaching on that book? Isn't it kind of pharisaical? St. James writes about works. He writes about deeds. He writes about the importance of doing. St. James writes about the law. James, much like the Gospels according to Saints Matthew and Luke, spends much of his writing dwelling on how Christians should treat the poor, how the church lives, about the works that we ought to do, about how we should care for the orphan, the widow, the stranger in our midst. And it can be enough to make you wonder, who can possibly live up to this standard? Like Luther, we ask, who can follow the law so perfectly? And the answer, of course, is that none of us can. We don't gather together in humble confession every Sunday because kneeling is so good on our knees. No, it's because we've fallen to sin and need to hear again the good news of God's forgiveness. But if we stop reading James there, if we write him off just as law, we miss something important. Because as St. James tells us, every good gift, Every attempt to serve the Lord, no matter how flawed, every action taken out of love is from God. Despite our own imperfection and sin, we cannot so hastily abandon God's perfect law. How could we possibly turn our back on the Lord's command to love our neighbors as ourselves? We've taken our distinctions between law and gospel too far as though we can somehow perfectly distinguish between all of the myriad ways God is involved in the world. We turn to Scripture and we say, well, that says thou shalt, so law. Here, Jesus says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. Well, that's got to be gospel. Thou shalt not. Law. But then we get to something like the sacraments. This is my body, given for you. This is the new covenant in my blood, shed for you and for all people for the forgiveness of sin. Do this for remembrance of me. Okay, well, wait a minute. It's a command, so it should be law, but there's a promise of forgiveness, so it's grace and Gospel? Let's call it lawful. A new commandment I give to you. Love one another. What do we do? Jesus is giving us a new law in the middle of the gospel. When we consider how God gave the Hebrews the law after delivering them from slavery in Egypt, 
when we consider the prophet's calls to repentance and assurance of God's steadfast love, when we consider Christ's own teaching, what we see is not a sharp distinction as though someone could draw a thick, dark tree between law and gospel. Rather, when confronting the Pharisees, note what our Lord says. Not that the law is unnecessary, but that God's commandments are superior to human tradition. Elsewhere, Jesus said he came not to abolish the law, but to fulfill it. For all of his attempts to distinguish between the two and his less than nuanced rhetoric, Luther was keenly aware of what St. James is getting at today. Not that we are saved by works of the law, but rather that the law shows us how to live as God intends. The law shows us how to live into the good news, into the gospel of salvation. And while Luther taught that the law shows us our sin, he also taught that it reveals who God has always intended us to be. It reveals how the church is called to exist in the world. Luther was keenly aware that the gospel places a demand on believers, that it calls us to love God and neighbor and enemy and ourselves. The law and the gospel are not opposites, but they are intimately linked. The good news, the law is good news for us because through it, God has shown us how to live as citizens of the kingdom of God. The gospel places a demand on our lives, calls us to do good works as citizens of that same kingdom. The law does not give us license to angrily judge others or to trust in our own understanding, but shows us how to be doers of the word, serving God and neighbor out of love. Dear ones, we do not earn our salvation through our works, nor are we set free from the need for those good works. Rather, we are set free for good works. This is what Luther meant when he wrote On Christian Liberty and said, A Christian is perfectly free, Lord of all, subject to none. A Christian is a dutiful, perfectly dutiful servant of all, subject to all. And so in our baptism, we are set free and united with Christ that we might be his hands and feet to build up the kingdom of God, to do the work of Christ in the world. We are set free by God's grace to obey the perfect law, to love the Lord our God and to love our neighbors as ourselves. We are set free to serve the widow and the orphan and the stranger and all who have need. We are set free from our greed and set free to feed the hungry. We are set free from our fear and set free to love our enemies. We are set free from our pride and set free to be servants of all. We are set free from lies and set free for truth. We are set free for life in God's kingdom and to obey the perfect law, but in knowledge that we are not perfect. We will stumble. We will fall. 
we will return time and time again to our sinful ways, and we will return to these benches and fall on our knees. But our divine lawgiver is merciful. Our Lord is perfect even when we are not. And so when we fail time and time again, when we return to the sins of greed, fear, and pride, our Lord is ready to forgive us. The grace poured out upon us in these waters will sustain us. And here at this table, we are strengthened by the body of Christ, the true bread of heaven. Here is forgiveness of sins for when we fall short. And here is also the grace to endure. Amen.